This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am again delighted to be joined by Tyler Cole, who was recently on the show to discuss the use and misuse of statistics in medical and neurosurgical research. And I am over the moon that Dr. Wang is back with us again. The globe-trotting neurosurgeon has returned home. And uh, having just listened to the conversation I had with Tyler in, in preparation for today's interview, I think, Dr. Wang, you, you had a few thoughts you wanted to share about it. Yeah, thanks, JP. I, I apologize uh, for not being present for the last and, and some of the more recent recordings. I, I don't want to divulge all the details, but I'm um, sort of being semi-recruited in the final rounds of a very uh, high-level uh, position, um, which uh, is sort of transcends neurosurgery in some ways. But I, I, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail with it, but we can discuss it on a few future podcasts. But it's just kind of kept me away from, from home for a little bit. Um, I, I found that, you know, the recording you guys made was super timely. Um, you know, this, this whole realm and, and we have listeners that are young and old and, and mid-career. It's so interesting to me, right? Because as neurosurgeons, you know, I find that we're very competitive and, uh, Tyler, you're absolutely right about the need to publish and the the competitiveness level of your H index or I index or whatever it is now, right? Um, It's getting scaled up. But on the other hand, right, there's this other countercurrent culture where it's like, how many neurosurgeons even go on tenure track now? Mm. And, you know, are we really like, if you, if you progress from assistant to associate to full professor, like, is there really a material difference in, what you take home, what your salary is. And, and the answer is, I don't, I don't know. There's a big difference. I mean, I'm a, I've been a full professor now for, oh, geez, uh, going on 10 years with tenure, but I don't find that it makes a big difference, but yet I feel compelled, like Tyler said, to publish. And then there's the whole world of reviews. Like I've probably done about 6,000 reviews for our journals and, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not like a paid position, right? So you're just doing this you know, out of the goodness of your heart and, and reviewing for the JNS spine, that's like eight hours a week uh, of commitment. So it's, it, there's, a, there's so many things that touch on so many interesting topics you guys skirted. And I'm sure our listeners are, are wanting to, to get more engaged on this. But I, I, I am so glad, uh, JP, you opened this topic with Tyler because it is so important, such an important dimension of what we as neurosurgeons do. Yeah, and there are a lot of forces from outside, you know, just the clinical work that influenced this. Um, obviously we're, we're grounded in, in patient care as, as doctors, but we're also people. So, you know, there's, there's aspects of prestige status, um, your reputation in the field. Obviously the reward is taking care of, of patients, but you know, at, at a certain point you, you do that for long enough. Suddenly you're, you're thinking, Oh, what's next? What can I work on? And there's different ways to, you know, express that, you know, there's obviously a lot of genuine curiosity and very good science that comes out. But on the flip side, once certain incentives get directly tied to just publishing, that's kind of when things change. And, you know, you kind of combine that with more of a culture of, uh, you know, participation trophies, because, you know, science is not an area where 
there should be participation trophies, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, if, if you're talking about coworkers or, you know, in your personal life, having good relationships with everyone and, you know, participation trophies are great, you know, cause that's, you know, how you build community and, and you have a, a positive culture, but science is not that science is meant to have specific questions and hypotheses that are tested and, there should be a rigorous search for disconfirmatory evidence. Um, and everything should be extremely harshly criticized. And if something's not working out, it shouldn't just be pushed through. Um, you know, it, it should be abandoned <laughs> ruthlessly because it's not, you know, this, mm. that's not the point of, that's not the point of science. Um, now I say that all, you know, that not trying to say that I have not, made mistakes or done bad research or anything like that. So I think I made this disclaimer in the last one. So I, I don't want this to make this sound like they're, you know, villains here, but it's, it's more just, it's interesting to think about how this culture has evolved and uh, you know, and, and things like you see the, the recent uh, stepping down sort of inglorious downfall of the president at the, of Stanford, uh, Tessie Levine, um, when actually the, the Stanford daily broke the story that, uh, you know, his basically lots of misconduct, uh, the direct quote, yeah, I have it up here. It says, uh, Tessie Levine created a culture that tended to reward the winners, quote unquote, uh, that is postdocs who could generate favorable results and marginalize or diminish the losers. That is postdocs who were unable or struggled to generate such data. There were, repeated instances of manipulation of research data and or subpar scientific practices from different people and in labs run by Dr. Tessie Levine at different institutions. Now, you know, the thing is, is what that shows is that, you know, the, the whole process that went up to before the story broke is that, you know, that's what gets you to the top, right? Creating that mm -hmm. culture. Um, and, you know, he's got papers being retracted, but, you know, that's, that, you know, it, that's a, a, kind of a wider conversation about these motivations. Yeah. So I really want to dive into that story and some of the aspects that you touched on there, Tyler, specifically his lab culture. And I think we're going to keep coming back to this concept, but the incentives, the human incentives. And so before we dive headfirst into some of the perverse incentives, I think it's worthwhile at least to tip our hats to the ideal incentives and, and thinking about science for science sake and the scientific mindset, the, the greatest incentive is truth, to simply know that which is true, reject that which is false. But we're closer to the artisan, the craftsman, the engineer even uh, side of things where we don't want to just know something that's true, but we want to know what's useful and what works, a useful truth. And so before we dive into the per perverse incentives, I think another great incentive is to figure out what works for our patients and let that change our own practice, but also even change the practice of the field as a whole. And so Dr. Wang, now that you're back, I'm curious as we're sitting here thinking about our publication pressures and the product of all of the research we do within neurosurgery, you've been a full professor for 10 years, as you said, and, and you've, you're largely in the population of people who make the papers that others read that guide their practice. And you're in the class that determines that which we call true and spine neurosurgery. So I wonder if these pr 
you know, do these incentives and these goals when we publish actually pay off in your experience? Can you think of a time that you read a paper that changed your practice as a full professor? Or conversely, when you go and you do visiting professorships and you meet people and you talk to people, has someone said to you, I was doing this this way, then I read that paper you wrote, and now I do it that way. How frequently does that really happen? You know, it's so interesting, JP. You're bringing up a lot of a lot of important points, and it's almost hard to hit them all, right? Because it's such a giant topic. There's the topic of what is research and what is truth, and is are they the same thing? And they're not. The second is how is that disseminated and promulgated, and what's the impact of that? Because the publishing world is different from research, right? In other words, the process of publishing, that's a business, right? The journals are a business. They generate profit. And then there's, well, public, really- it's, it's worth keeping in mind they're, they're public companies too. So that oh, their ultimate, who they ultimately answer to are, are shareholders, not the scientific mm-hmm. institution. Well, so, and and most of them are based in the Netherlands. So there's a whole dynamic there because I've worked with Michael Puzo for years. If you're yeah. talking about Lippincott or Elsevier, that whole process. Then there is the coin of the realm, and I would suggest that even beyond publication, it's really grants. We haven't even touched on NIH funding, for example, and that's really the coin of the realm, right? So if you said, well, what's going to make your career? It's NIH or DOD funding or whatever, and that is its own political process, which is highly, highly – we could have 10 podcast episodes just to scratch the surface – and yeah. before we even get into all that, right? And I, I, I yeah, Tyler's chomping at the bit now. I, you know, <laughs> I want to give a disclosure. Number one, I went to Stanford for college and medical school, so I bleed cardinal red. Um, but I don't necessarily have uh, strong positive feelings about Stanford's direction today. That's my disclosure on this. Not neurosurgery. I love the folks at Stanford neurosurgery. I mean the university as a whole. Um, so I'm agnostic in that sense, but I, am I, I also declare I, I went there for, for medical school. And to be clear, I, it's it's a fantastic scientific institution. I I honestly loved going to medical school there. But, you know, that said, you know, it's you, we have to be honest about you know, the, the world in general. And regardless, the thing is, is this happens in multiple places. I I just picked out <laughs> Stanford. <laughs> The other piece, which I think for the uninitiated, they need to know, right? So for the uninitiated, meaning the non-neurosurgeons listening, neurosurgery is in my mind, and maybe it's still true, the only medical specialty of all residencies you can do, I'm not counting fellowship here, that requires a significant portion of research. So UVA model, three years. Eight-year residency, three years of research. Typically, two years. Now, 18 months or a year, sometimes in folded fellowship. But but, but ma- orders of magnitude above any other kind of residency in terms of the, 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 the patina of requirement from the RRC perspective, the Residency Review Committee, of what's required of neurosurgical trainees that everybody does research a la Harvey Cushing, right? Am I right about that, Tyler? There's no other specialty like that. Yeah, it's it's definitely well. I, I think some general surgery uh, programs or that no, are no, now no, integrated, board. like plastic surgery. I think I they. Board. Tyler, I'm not saying like at Johns Hopkins they do this. I'm saying across the entire band of all 100 plus neurosurgery programs. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. 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 A prime directive is research. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So that's why this topic is so important. So Tyler. Yeah. Uh, 
why don't you take it away? Let's talk about Stanford, right? You and I are both uh, from the farm, right? We're both Cardinal. So what, what's your opinion on this with Mark Tessier-Levine? And, and this is not meant to indict him. This is a very complex um, problem and process that probably exists to some degree everywhere, right? Yeah. And it's, again, I, I don't want to sound like, you know, so we should back up and just say, these are first world problems, right? <laughs> there, are, there are many other things to be concerned about. Um, you know, this is just particularly pervasive, you know, in in our field. And I, I think what kind of got me really perked my attention is this, this JAMA article that uh, showed the number of publications for people applying into residency in different fields. And the neurosurgery line was just way above everything else. Um, you know, plastics, derm, radonc, things like that. And, um, and the thing is there's neurosurgery specifically and then science in general. I think, I, I don't think neurosurgery is necessarily special. It's just, it's just like <laughs> given our personalities, it's, <laughs> we just sort of take it to an extreme. Um, and, you know, that part of it's the ethos in the field, you know, the, the message to Garcia, which if people aren't familiar, it's long story short, the, 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 the you know, the, the whole point of this, this fable or uh, parable um, is basically just get the job done, you know, and which is fantastic for clinical work. Um, I think it's, it's a good thing to have in the back of your mind, just, you know, don't really know, <laughs> care about the details. It's just what, what matters is that you're delivering, you know, care to your patients and good care. And which is fine, again, in, in a lot of situations. But in science, again, if you start down some path and you realize it's not working out, you know, part, our culture says, well, just, just push it through. Just get it done. And right. but, you know, that's, again, not that's not how science is supposed to work. And so then you have these cultural effects. Have you guys heard of the, um, the, uh, the dice experiment? What's this? So it, it's a, it's actually a really well validated, uh, experiment that, um, the, to summarize, you basically have people self-report the results of throwing a die. So you, you throw, right. you, you, you throw a, you throw a die and then, um, I think it's like 40 or 50 times. And then you, you're supposed to report how many sixes come up. No one's checking. Um, or at least they, the, the people who are being studied don't think anyone's checking. And then the reward is that you get a certain, uh, I think it's like, you know, I, I don't know what the standard number is, but it's like $5 per six that you roll. So there's a clear incentive to, you know, lie on how many sixes that you get. And, What's really fascinating is that they correlate this to people's uh, career preferences. And uh, they've done it in a number of different countries. And what they found is that the countries that have higher degrees of corruption in civil servants um, actually have, are the ones who, sorry, the ones who are most likely to lie on the DICE experiment report that they are most likely to want to go into some sort of civil servant government position uh, because there's this culture of, of corruption. And it's, it, what's fascinating is that you repeat it in a, a, a country that has low levels of corruption in the government and civil service. And it's the opposite result. Actually, the, the people who are the most honest about the number of sixes that they roll 
actually say that are the ones that are most likely to go into these um, civil service positions. Uh, with the, the conclusion being that people's preferences and what they do are directly influenced by the culture, right? It's, it, you can't really isolate people specifically. And I, like they, I think the, the example they used for a high corruption country was, was in India. And in this one paper, I actually saved the quote because um, it, it, it's, it's, it, and it's not correlated with intelligence. So basically they, they said that a screening process that chooses high ability applicants would not alter the average propensity for corruption. So just picking based on qualifications doesn't really matter, right? It, it depends on the culture that that person, you know, basically came up in and what they saw and what's expected, you know, in the culture at large. And it's funny because going back to Stanford, I was, <laughs> I was, um, uh, I, I lived on California Avenue, which is just outside campus uh, with a few other med students. And this was uh, around 2015, 2016, around when uh, Theranos uh, was a, mm. a big deal. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes' face was was everywhere, and I honestly I thought it was totally cool. I was, I was literally across the street from this Theranos campus, and you know, at the, the narrative at the time is there's this young genius, basically changing the world, has this high flying med tech startup revolutionizing you know medicine, and um, obviously we know how that how that ended. But it's it's funny when you actually like look back at what sort of culture that she was raised in. Um, so you can't even make this up. Her dad worked for Enron, and um, she was actually in this you know hyper competitive uh, high school. And she was the one. She was you know the high schooler doing all of her research with you know at you know academic labs, and so she saw all this growing up. So by the time she hit college, she was already kind of in this, you know, academic, you know, publisher parish mindset. And, and it, again, it can get you really far. Um, but it wasn't until she was in a situation where, you know, it, in a, if you're running a company, like there's, you, you can't just bullshit forever. Eventually you have to deliver something that people want. And, you know, that's, that's when it started to, to, to fall apart. But, you know, she basically, she sort of came up in this hyper competitive environment and, you know, it, it wasn't until, and this is where the incentives come in. If, if there's no downside to the bullshit, then um, basically it just, it, there's a never ending stream of it. So I think that's, that, there's kind of a parallel here with, with, you know, academic publishing is that there's, there's really no downside to it. You, it yeah, the the more you spray out there, there's, it's, it, there's no consequences. Right. That, that dice experiment is really interesting. I'm, when we're done here, I'm going to have to read up on that because it seems like a great screening tool for uh, conscientiousness, one of the big five personality traits. And so it makes perfect True. sense that those low in conscientiousness would gravitate toward positions of power in a setting where grift is the norm. And so thinking back to our, I guess, a microcosm for a nation, a laboratory, and in this case, the Stanford lab, it seems that at least what was re reported and what has been demonstrated or proven was not any out and out falsification of data or or uh, hiding of, of data on the part of uh, the, the president stepping down, but rather that he, as you said, tended to favor the people that uh, had good results and uh, disfavor those who did not. And so you can imagine someone who perhaps uh, scored highly, if you would call it that, on, on the DICE experiment would thrive in an environment where 
your superior to whom you're answering doesn't look too far into what you're doing and how you produce your work, but simply looks at the results. And right. when your output is a paper to be published and it's not life or death, you know, when, when we're working in clinical neurosurgery, if I go report that I've seen someone examine them and they're awake, neurologically intact and strong, and my chief accepts that, but then it turns out that they're in a coma, that's a big no-no. And there's a, there's a huge disincentive for me to do that because I'll quickly be discovered and there's a real tangible outcome to that. But for something that's going to publication, uh, that outcome is months away, perhaps years away, and it doesn't feel as physically real, does it? Exactly, exactly. And that's, and that, that's, that's kind of where the, 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 the culture is very different than a lot of other situations where there's actual you know, feedback. It, it's funny because it's, it's, it's like a dichotomy even within the field itself, the clinical and then the research, where clinical, there are obvious consequences um, to you know, overlooking things, but there, there's not in, you know, in the scientific side. Um, and again, I, I want to be clear. I, I think the majority of research is, is good and useful and, and helpful. It's just more that the signal to noise ratio, given these in incentives drops dramatically. Um, and so a lot of this is sort of, I, I think maybe underlying my, I just wanted to get back so that, you know, I, I'm not wasting time <laughs> reading the literature, which is like, you know, right. It's, it's you well, know, painful no, at this point. No, but I, yeah. You know, Tyler, I, so when I was listening to your recording, the last one you did, it strikes me as something more like this. There yeah. is a collection of knowledge or truths, let's call it truths, and then you want to turn that into knowledge. Now, if you were to say that, well, we need to maximize the filter so that every aspect of a publication is correct, down to the spelling of the author's name, down to the institution they're affiliated with, you could go to the super fine filter and say that the, 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 the halls of truth, when this comes out in this journal, it is verified, it is completely checked, everything is completely right. Then you're going to have a very, very, very fine filter on everything. And it's actually going to restrict information. I'm not suggesting that fraudulent information be out there. That's not what I'm saying. What we have done now is we've created a, a situation where there's so many journals and that can be a good thing. Like, look at Curious. Curious, you publish first and let people review after. So in other words, John Adler, Stanford, right, one of my mentors, says, look, why do you allow this editorial review board, and I've been on so many, that is intrinsically biased, regulate information. You should let the audience adjudicate the veracity of your information. Get it out there. And he has a point because... How many great ideas have been destroyed? I've given talks about how some of my best ideas, when I sent them to be published, they were completely shot down and rejected, and now they're standard of care almost. Um, so I, I think it's a very interesting thing to talk about because, you know, where do we really want to be with this, right? We, you, you could even say that to, to your point about the DICE experiment, the government tolerates a certain amount of fraud. It tolerates it because it allows business to be performed freely, right? In other words, I'm not suggesting that you know, like, like, look at the COVID fraud, right? They're saying how many $20 billion of fraud or more, right? Uh, something like 20% of all the COVID stimulus ended up being fraudulent, but they did that because they needed to get the money out, right? So they're tolerating. Yeah. Well, so, so, well, so, so, well, here's, 
I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And I, 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 I don't want to come off as, you know, sound like I'd like to restrict what's coming out. It's more like, it, it's more addressing the underlying incentives that, that promote a production of so much noise that it's hard to actually pick out what's important. So like, you know, for example, um, there's this uh, anesthesia. He's he's the editor in chief of um, the journal Anesthesia. His name is John Carlyle, and uh, the, the Economist did a whole podcast on, on this guy, and um, and he's really kind of one of the folks leading the charge here in terms of you know data quality because it's not so much that there's um, it, there's there should be less, but it's more that if you're going to, if a publisher is going to put their name and stamp something as being, this is science, there should be some degree of check um, in terms of, you know, what, what, what is the actual quality of the data? And there's a, there's, there's specific examples where patients are harmed. So the most notorious example in anesthesia that came up that, you know, you know, reading about him is the, um, the whole beta blocker, uh, controversy. So there were these studies led by, I think it was actually a, a Dutch researcher. And his premise is that you should give uh, beta blockers to all patients. And Dr. Wang, maybe you know the, the history of this better than I because you actually saw it in clinical practice. But for a while, they're recommending um, pre-op beta blockers for everyone saying that it was beneficial in terms of risk for these cardiac procedures. Um, and uh, basically, once they actually studied it and they, they followed it more and more and more, these were you know, published as randomized controlled trials. They found out that the results were totally bogus. And it was actually the other way around, that patients were actually harmed by getting these beta blockers. Because, you know, for example, if you had to give a presser or something like that, the, the, the patients wouldn't respond because they had these, the beta blockers on board. And... Mm -hmm. So for years, it was this, this big controversy. And, and I, you know, it's things like this that got this guy looking. And when he actually, you know, would look at, uh, I th he did this review of 150 trials, got access to anonymized individual participant data. And ba basically by studying the actual data, he found that about 44% of the trials had some flawed data, either impossible statistics incorrect calculations, duplicated figures, and about 26% of the papers uh, had problems that were so widespread that the trial was completely untrustworthy. Uh, you know, he, he said because the authors were, they're either incompetent or they had faked the data. So, I mean, he's, you know, he's not the head of, you know, anesthesia. So he's looking at this very carefully. You know, he's rejected these things he calls zombie trials, but the thing is, is he'll track these after after he rejects them. He'll look at the other journals, and sometimes the data will be tweaked or something like that. And but it'll still be published. So he'd already you know determined that these are not really fit for publication, and then they're still you know out there. And again, he's you know he's kind of a man on a mission. Probably you know he has more time than than some of us. Like <laughs> they have this little anecdote about him. They said he rises at four thirty a.m to let out his cat and then unable to sleep, he reaches for his laptop and starts typing up data from published papers on clinical trials. Um, he, you know, by the time his wife's alarm sounds, he's usually managed to fill a spreadsheet with ages, weights and heights of hundreds of people 
some of whom he suspects never actually existed. So, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I totally hear what you're saying, but I think, you know, it's, it, we, we also don't want to deny that there's a lot of, you know, you know yeah. Tyler, I, I don't disagree with you, right? And and I yeah. don't want to ever be saying that, you know, there are cases of fraud and there are cases of malfeasance, as, as JP has said, and those are clearly wrong. But, you know, one of the easiest things to do is to go after data and say it's bad. Like I published a paper on brain death exams when I was a resident. It was so easy. Something like 40% of brain death exams, and there are very few exams and things that we do that are more important than diagnosing brain death so they can harvest organs, right? Yeah. Are wrong. In other words, they're neglecting critical components like a corneal reflex. Or, like it's not even documented anywhere in the chart. And, you know, it's very easy to go after that and say, well, you know, people are really fucking up. Right. And and I'm not suggesting that this anesthesiologist is not a good guy and all that. I guess what I'm saying is something more like this. Um, the the gold standard is a randomized controlled trial. But you said it about the the the, the generalizability. So one of the fundamental problems with all research is that it assumes that diseases are somewhat homogeneous. You gave the example of carotid stenosis versus aneurysm. I would suggest carotid stenosis in different in every single patient at a certain level, right? At a certain granular level. And so when you say, well, how do we do a study that examines a disease or a problem, right? Like the beta blockers. I'm sure there are some patients that do actually, in fact, benefit from beta blockers before surgery. And anesthesia. We just don't know who they are, right? Because the study oh, wasn't. Well, that's that's something they did. Kind of the, the right? conclusion now is that it's basically patients who are already chronically on them beforehand should stay on them. But apart right. from so, that, yeah, yeah. But the point of the matter is, what's the definition of disease? So you end up with these studies that say, like, we're trying to do this new SLIP three trial with Zogogawala, which will be hopefully funded by NIH, and they're saying, well, spondylolisthesis, but which ones? So we got to pick out the ones where you're not even sure if they need fusion or not. And then those are the ones we study. But then when the results come out, they're like, well, let's generalize it to all spondylolisthesis, right? And so yeah. you're saying, well, we try to get such a homogeneous good study that can pass NIH, but then is it even relevant? Because it's a word. Spondylolisthesis is a name, as you said, like ICD code, right? But which one do you have of the thousands of kinds there are, right? And I think that this is the fundamental problem, accepting fraud. Right. Well, I see that more as an issue with a lack of incentive for collaboration and and data sharing because, um, you know, there there's it's it's well. So you're, you the the problem in medicine specifically is that there's it's so difficult to share data, and I'm not saying it's in a, inappropriately difficult to share data because it is medical data and it should be, you know, it's you know among the most you know, important in private data that, that people have. Um, but, you know, the thing is there's, there, there's declining incentive to collaborate on multi-center projects because the, the way the nature of, of credit is given in, in science is that the more people you, you bring on board, you know, the more diluted it is. And, you know, it's, it looks less good for any one individual even though it's more valuable to the field, the, the work involved in doing a lot of these multi-center studies is incredibly difficult to overcome sometimes, particularly with IRBs. And so, so I, I think it's, I mean, yeah, there's definitely like a, and the, the reason I say that is that the more data that you're able to gather amongst people, uh, you know, 
collecting high quality detailed data, the more you're able to drill down into statistically significant and well-powered studies on specific pathologies. But again, there's just, there's not really anything set up that allows widespread data. And obviously there's initiatives uh, with, with, with limited people sharing data that, you know, particularly in spine, I, I think it's great. Um, but yeah, that, that's where there's, there's just so many barriers to doing that, which I think is a separate issue from, you know, the, the ethics of publishing. Well, we're running out of time and we need to respect uh, your, your, the time of our guest, Tyler. Thank you for coming back on again. But I, I would like to close with one short question because we started small, we got big, and I'd like to bring it back down to where this is applicable to maybe most of our listeners because there are those trials in neurosurgery, um, sport, stascus, nascus, aruba, uh, iswa, the hemicrany trials, all the large core infarct trials we talked about recently with one of my bosses, Dr. Crowley, and those really do change practice. Since I've started residency, some of these trials in vascular and endovascular have changed what we do at Rush in the four years that I've been a physician. But that is the rare pinnacle of papers within our field. And the vast base of that pyramid are things people do to get into residency and then things do to expand their CV. And it's Kind of as you touched on before, Tyler, there's a home for every paper, that mentality. And so bringing it back to Dr. Wang's openings comment, opening comments where you kind of observe that most people don't go into tenure track positions. And even if they do, what is the real value of that? Why do you two think that a full professor attending neurosurgeon cares enough to pump out these small low impact, going to be filed away and name your impact factor 1.0 journal to be published and never see the light of day. Why do people still care enough to pump those out? You know, JP, let me, let me take that first and let Tyler close. So first of all, shout out to my good buddy, Praveen Mumanini, all the folks in Spine, um, you know, talking about data quality, cleaning it. Praveen is a real expert at this whether it be the ISSG, the N2QOD, MPA data, uh, or the uh, ASR data, or even the SLIP2 uh, trial, which uh, Zogo Gawala really led, but Praveen's integral in. It's, it's huge amounts of work to get good data and get it clean and to work together. Tyler's right. We need to work together better to, to fix the problems that are out there. And, and I think that what, what, what neurosurgery offers folks, for those people listening who, who want to be neurosurgeons, there are so many problems to treat and the impact's so great. So why do I want to be involved in any of this? Well, there's it really falls into a couple classes. And, and Michael Puzo is the one that talks about writing the single author paper, right? He's like, Mike, write the single author papers. Because you're trying to memorialize and disseminate information about what you think is important for the future. Like first in man would be a good example. Even a case report, first in man, right? It's important to get it out there that this is happening. So it's kind of like a news service. But I think what it is really, because, you know, look, promotion, does it, how important is it to be associate versus uh, full professor versus assistant? Does it really, really matter in the end? And I would suggest that it should, because we need to motivate people to do good research, right? Like Tyler doing good research. But I think that the answer here lies in the fact that the problems we deal with are so compelling. So I 
I tell patients like, can you really trust anything like this coffee hurt or help you? There's a different trial every other year. And it says the opposite of the last one, right? Because it's low impact stuff. I mean, it's epidemiologically important, but really you were saved by drinking coffee or you were killed by drinking coffee. Not really. But what we do, we see the impact every day and we see the problems and we see that we have a role in fixing them. And I think that's why people love to do research in neurosurgery. Harvey Cushing started this really. He saw that individual neurosurgeons could come up with ideas and technologies and solutions that had not immediate, but near immediate impact to their patients. And I think that's why everybody should be involved in the research mindset, if not the process, maybe the process problem, but the mindset. Hmm. Absolutely. I I mean, I I couldn't agree more. I I say this all coming from a a loving place towards, towards science (laughs) and, uh, and, I think a lot of this kind of made me think, I kind of started thinking about this more during the pandemic when science was being called into question uh, frequently. And um, and I, I kind of got to the point where I realized, well, there are actually valid critiques of science. And I, I think once you start asking those questions, it becomes a much bigger, you know, complicated question that, uh, again, there's issues within neurosurgery, but then there's also issues with science at large. And uh Always happy, happy to, to uh, discuss it, and I don't know all the answers, but I think it's good to talk about it. Wonderful. Well, Tyler, it's been great to have you on again. I, I definitely foresee another conversation with you in the future. I'm glad Dr. Wang was here for this one. But just as we close, I would like to point all of our listeners to a humble publication in the September issue 2022 of the Red Journal Neurosurgery by Wang et al., titled Brain Death Documentation, analysis and issues, and being the great scientific reader that I am, I'm just skimming the abstract here, but I would like to point out that Dr. Wang found corneals were tested in only 57% of cases, motor responses were noted only in 66% of cases, but importantly, documentation by the neurosurgery department was generally more complete. That's right. (laughs) So Tyler, thanks for coming back on the show. Dr. Wang, great to have you back and uh, glad your travels went well. Thank you all for listening. Thanks. Thanks, JP. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.